Hello and welcome to the weekly podcast of Plugged Into Christ. As always, this is your announcer, Zayvon Grady. This weekly podcast is hosted by Pastor and Teacher William Polis. Continues in teaching the series titled, Acts History of the Holy Church. Today is part 11 of our current series as Pastor Polis continues in the book of Acts in chapters 25 and 26. Our prayer here plugged into Christ is that you will be blessed in getting knowledge and understanding from the word of God. Now here is Pastor William Polis with part 11 of our weekly podcast. Welcome to our listeners today as we're getting close to the end of covering the book of Acts. After today, we have just two more chapters left to conclude with the book of Acts. Just a reminder that each one of these is a separate podcast series, and our plan is to do it that way from the first chapter of the book of Acts to the last chapter of the book of Revelation. Understand that every one of these individual podcasts is an overview of each book that will be covered. Now, in doing a podcast like this, I conduct a deep dive study of the Bible. I use the Holy Scriptures. I use commentary when it's necessary and needed. And I also look at the Bible through the lenses of ancient history and biblical archaeology. With using all of these tools, I bring the Bible alive for you in hopes that the study will be fruitful and the learning will be long and abiding. All right, let's get started today with our book, our book of Acts, chapters 25 and 26. Acts 25, chapter 25, verses 1 through 12. Festus, the foot soldier for Rome. The governor of Judea, Porcius Festus, wasted no time in cementing a relationship with the Jews. Roman procurators always had to establish a working relationship with the high priest of the Sanhedrin, because that working relationship in governing Judea would be a nightmare otherwise. Festus is facing a daunting task already in succeeding the very unpopular Felix, whose behavior towards the Jews had antagonized the local countryside for years. Festus's time in Judea was so short that Luke's account represents most of what we know about the foot soldier for Rome. He seemed to be the perfect politician, quite willing to consult local authorities while trying not to offend anyone. He used the proper posture, since his predecessor had just been somewhere similarly fired by Nero. Now Luke uses the plural chief priest, which may reflect the ongoing influence of Ananias, even though Ishmael, the son of Fabi, now sat in the head chair as the head priest. While in this change, it's go- while it's going on both locally and regionally, that the Sanhedrin would have it on its hands. We can see in the case of Paul, he was high on, li- on the list of their nem- as their nemesis. Paul had already been in prison for two years in the prison of, per- of Herod's pal- palace at Caesarea. So it poses this question for Acts chapters 20, chapter 25, verses 2 through 5. Will the Jews never tire of execution plots? Why they hoped to use Festus' experience against Paul, we cannot know. Festus was not going to rescue Paul. Rather, he wanted things done decently and in order. The prisoner was already taken to Caesarea, and Festus had barely had time to acquaint himself with the two major cities within its jurisdiction. Festus was hardly in a position to make promises to a group of religious authorities, but a man's life was at stake. Acts 25 Verses 6 through 9. In this we see, for Paul, he had no reason to be on trial at all. 
Felix's incompetence in failing to declare the acquittal when he had no evidence to retain a prisoner now caused another trial for the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 25, verse 7, Luke angrily paints a picture of the Jewish officials circling Paul and hurling charges at him, yet none of these charges could be sustained by proof or witnesses. We assume the charges leveled by the Jewish authorities have not changed, such as offending the law, Acts 21.28, defiling the temple, Acts 21.28, and Acts 24.6, and planning treason against Rome, Acts 24.5. Paul denied them all. Festus asked Paul if he'd be willing to go to, go to Jerusalem and be judged under Festus's rule. Paul's first response, that he has done nothing wrong and is, wor- is, not, is worthy of death, if death should come, he, he would gladly go that route for Christ. But what does he do? Paul appeals to the seat of Caesar, Acts 25.11. After this appeal, Festus conferred with the council and answered to Paul, Hast thou appealed unto Caesar? Unto Caesar thou shalt go, Acts 25.12. Things were shaky because one, of them, one could not be trust a politician in the first century. That was just a, a non-clementure uh, truth about that time especially the issues of favoritism which kept surfacing during the times of the early days in his office. Paul wanted to silence his talk about going back to Jerusalem finally. Let's not miss the contrast where Jesus stood at his trial and was silent. But in this case, Paul is verbal. In fact, downright defiant in telling Festus he knew very well that these were trumped-up charges and were nonsense. Paul is not afraid of dying. He would not have this as plans at this point. Contrast that with Jesus, who was before Pilate and headed to the cross. It would be futile to have any discussion with Pilate, which would have altered his father's will. And this is uh, speaking about in the case of, of Jesus. Paul, if he were executed, would have wanted to be at the hands of the Romans rather than the frenzied Sanhedrin. Paul uses the, uses the Fifth Amendment, which is a Roman law, to appeal to the emperor. And it was appeal reflected several times before Acts ends. We see it in Acts 25, 11 and 12, and verse 21, also in 25 and 26, Acts 26, 32, and Acts 28, verse 19. Acts chapter 25, verse 12. Since this takes place about 55 or 56 AD, and Nero was the emperor at the time, Paul is appealing to more to Caesar or the law rather than to Nero. He's more looking at the law than he is to the emperor himself. Once Paul delivers his Caesarean epilo, a provincial governor had no choice. Paul had effectively designed an end around Festus' authority. Whether in Jerusalem or Caesarea, no doubt that he was on his way to Rome. Acts 25, 13-22, Paul's appeal to Caesar. Herod Agrippa II, born in 27 AD and died in 100 AD, was still a young man the day when he visited Festus, approximately 35 years of age when he came to be the king of Chalice in 48 AD. He advanced his control over Abilene, Tetranonis, Acura, Tecuria, and Tiberius. His sister, we're talking about Herod Agrippa's sister, Bernice, came to live with him after the death of her husband, who was also her uncle. And this was common in the ancient world, but in comparison to our modern world, it was certainly a strange situation. Herod Agrippa did not rule over Judea. 
he had been appointed by Emperor Claudius as a curator of the temple. Harold Agrippa could insert or depose a high priest and also held responsibility for the temple's treasure and priestly vestments. According to Paul, Herod Agrippa was looked upon as authority concerning the Jewish religion, and it was for this reason that Festus broached the subject of Paul's case when Herod Agrippa II visited him. Acts 25, verses 16 through 22. Beginning with Paul's first visit to Jerusalem, Festus explained to Agrippa what he reads as the Roman version of the case against Paul. Now as for the writer of, of Acts, Luke, he was not there to hear, to hear that conversation, but he hears about it by word of mouth and the outcome of the events which are to follow. The key comes in verse 18 when they accused him. Felix tells Agrippa that they did not charge him of any crimes. The Jews dispute with Paul had to always be about, it was always about theology, especially concerning the interpretation of the Old Testament. At the center of it all stood Paul, who claimed that Jesus was alive. The former procurator had every opportunity to quit the acquit the prisoner in the absence of valid charges, but chose not to do so. Festus had barely had time to look more closely at the case in the Paul when the latter cut him off by appealing to Caesar. This is Paul appealing to Caesar in, in front of Festus, and that would stop any chance of Festus ruling on this case by himself. So now Festus has no time to consider what he would do or what he have done with Paul because the matter was now out of his hands. He would see the word Christian, but one would, would, would expect to see the word emperor or sobastos. But this is a word that only appears twice in the book of Acts. And the only time it is used in the entire New Testament. At this time, the Romans themselves did not equate the emperor with deity. The Romans did acknowledge that the emperor held a high level of majesty. Acts 25, verses 23 through 27. Presentation to Agrippa. We can hardly miss the parallel between Paul standing before Herod Agrippa II and Jesus, who stood before Herod Antipas, which is an account only Luke records, Luke 23, 6 through 12. In each case, the prisoner was first arraigned before Roman governor and then brought before the Jewish king. This is the longest of five defenses Luke records in Acts. Luke may have been a first-hand observer, but one thing we know about Luke is he was a bona fide historian who had already chronicled the life of Christ, had first-class credentials to the event concerning Paul. There was nothing to decide about the fate of the prisoner. The whole council convened for, just for show, and for the convenience of Agrippa to hear Paul side the story. Finally, when the robes were unfurled and the trumpets had sounded their last note, Paul was brought in. Acts 25, verses 24 and 25. In a fine piece of rhetorical exaggeration by all in attendance, both Greeks and Jews, Festus announced that the whole Jewish community in Jerusalem and Caesarea wanted Paul dead. Festus certainly understood that those in charge in Rome represented and spoke for the Roman people. And likewise, the Sanhedrin represented and spoke for the Jewish people. Here, Festus sets himself as Paul's deliverer. Festus goes on to declare Paul's innocence, but he did not quite tell the truth in saying, I, de I decided to send him to Rome, which in fact, Paul was the one who demanded to go to Rome. It wasn't Festus who sent him there. Here are some of the Roman 
uh, in Roman history that you ought to know here, the honorific term emperor was first conveyed upon Octavian and adopted. He was adopted heir of, of Julius Caesar in 27 BC. Nero, 54 to 68 AD, added Kiros, Lord or Majesty. The imperial court grew until the end of the Roman Empire. Acts 25, verses 26 and 27. Paul had broken no Roman law, so what could this governor write that he would send the prisoner with the prisoner to Rome? There had to be a set of charges that accompanied a prisoner. What was the governor going to write in saying that there was something that Paul did? We see no hint when it comes to Paul's defense before Agrippa, but it does come in verse 26. For sure it would be unreasonable to send a prisoner to the emperor without specifying charges. Such a wrong move without charges would lead to dereliction of duty and even removal of office. Festus' situation had lessened because he no longer had to deal with the Jews. But he still had to figure out what papers the Romans would send to take the imperial city along with the prisoner. We notice in verse 27 that he, Festus, could not send Paul as a prisoner to Rome without charges being specified against him. Acts chapter 26, Testimony of Accusation, verses 1 through 3. The spotlight has now shifted from the speech of Felix to the prisoner Paul. Paul would soon experience the fulfillment of Jesus' promise that he would witness to kings. Acts 9, verse 15. We have every reason to believe that Agrippa paid close attention to what he heard, because this is for one, they considered him an authority on, on Jewish religion. And he had a reputation to maintain. So they're looking at Agrippa as as an authority on Jewish religion. Secondly, he asked for the specific privilege of being able to hear the prisoner and what he had to say. Acts 25.5 Most importantly, Festus has already suggested that King Agrippa had a responsibility to provide some information for the official papers to be sent to Rome along with the prisoner. Luke tells us that Paul began his defense, but in reality, there was no real ongoing trial. All official procedures in Caesarea ended with Paul's appeal to, to Caesar. So despite the pomp and grandeur of this hearing, it was really quite informal. Nevertheless, Paul gained another opportunity for apogelia, which is the Greek word for apology. We learned that apogelia is the word for defense and stands for today for the very important branch in theology called apologetics. Its purpose is to explain and to defend the Christian faith. For Paul, that foundation stood in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We understood throughout the book of Acts that we do not have the entirety of any sermon that Luke recorded, but he provided summaries in every case. The formal politeness Paul directed his remarks to King Agrippa and considered it unfortunate to have the opportunity to speak. It is interesting that the word markios, which means blessed, is associated with the beatitudes of Jesus. Paul also defended himself against the accusation of the Jews. In fact, the accusations of sedition and rioting had been dismissed. Acts 25 verse 18 and also the accusation of defiling the temple was never brought forward in any, by any competent witness 
Acts 24, 18, and 19. This really left Paul free just to deal with one central issue, that he taught the Jewish law and perverted the doctrines, according to them, of the Old Testament. Acts 26, verses 4 and through 6. Paul goes well beyond, beyond his conversation. He reminds Agrippa that he was a high-profile pro- Pharisee serving on the Sanhedrin by prosecuting and imprisoning Christians. Paul was speaking about before his conversion. He simply wanted Agrippa to remember that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And as a Pharisee, he believed in resurrection, which, as Paul stoutly maintained throughout his, all of his trials, now holds center stage in his entire debate. Acts 26, verses 7 and 8. The key word throughout these early verses is hope. It appears here in verse 6 and verse 7, but also surfaces in other trial defenses, like Acts 23, 6, Acts 24, 15, and Acts 28, 20. Not only is the resurrection a hope, but it is also a promise. Some are startled to find Paul's reference to the 12 tribes. The ideal even of Jews in Paul's day was that the 12 tribes still made up the composition of the entire nation of Israel. Acts 26, 9 through 11, testimony of persecution. In Acts 26, 9, Paul makes a quick shift and the resurrection of Jesus. In short, he admitted that he too once thought the resurrection of Jesus was incredible. Here we find the name of Jesus representing his power and presence, not only in verse 9, but also in Acts 22, 38, Acts 3, 6, Acts 4, 10, and also verse 12, and Acts 5.41. In Acts 26.10, Paul's authority as a Sanhedrin hitman came directly from, his, from the religious officials appointed by Agrippa's father, Herod Agrippa I. We have clear evidence in the book of Acts of Paul's imprisoning. He put many people in prison, but more than one Christian put to death because of his efforts is new to this point. And one of those that was, was put to death was Stephen in which Luke gives much press in the book of Acts, in which Paul was responsible for Stephen's death. Acts 26.11 Paul tried to force Christians to abandon faith, and we're talking about before his conversion. The, he tells Agrippa he was not commonly successful, but attempts to bring people to, to the truth by torturing them, clearly indicates that the prosecutors themselves had long since abandoned the truth. This is where Paul was before his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Acts 26, verses 12 through 18. Testimony of Confrontation. Paul, in his testimony, admitted details which would confuse a largely pagan audience, such as his blindness and his encounter with Ananias. Those are two there that he did not tell the pagan audience when he first told what happened to him on the road to Damascus. Today we call that contextualization of the gospel. But Paul was doing it 2,000 years ago, and we still use the, the, that same contextualization today. It simply means uh, proclaiming the, the message of Christ in a way that would be most understandable to given any given audience. Missionaries must do this, and wise pastors practice this on a regular basis. Paul emphasized that the light was brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. And we give that as just one example of what Paul is talking about as he's telling this story to pagans and contextualizing the gospel. 
In Acts 26, verses 15 through 18, Paul moved to the commissioning words of Jesus. What the gathered audience in Caesarea heard that day sounded very much like the Old Testament prophetic calls of Ezekiel, two, chapter 2, verses 1 and 3, Jeremiah, chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, and Isaiah, chapter 44, verse 6 and 7. Grammatically, this represents the most interesting paragraph. It includes a stack of infinitives to open eyes, turn darkness into light, and to turn from authority of Satan to God, to receive forgiveness of sins, to receive an inheritance among those who believe in Jesus. Some of these are in stark contrast to what each other that Paul used are like, number one, get up, or in Paul's case, stand on your feet. Appeared to you, and Paul would use to appoint you. As a servant, Paul would say, as a witness. What you have seen, what I will show you. Rescue from Jews, rescue from Gentiles. To open their eyes, Paul would say to turn them. From darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. To receive forgiveness of sins, to receive a place among those who are sanctified. Acts 26, verses 19 through 23, Testimony of Resurrection. Paul's geographical lineup sounds like a bit of what is from Acts 1.8 in the situation of Damascus, which we also find in verse 20. This describes the pattern of Paul's ministry, first to the Jews, then also the Gentiles. And we'll see that later on in, another, in a future podcast uh, when we cover the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 16. Paul has delivered more than once by Roman intervention, but he understood clearly that all help ultimately came from God. It was God's deliverance that Paul was able to, in Caesarea that day, to proclaim the gospel of such two dignitaries in his presence. Paul's ministry knew no geographical or ethical boundaries. He proclaimed the same gospel to all, regardless of social or cultural standing. In verse 23, leaves Jewish tradition behind, and he focuses specifically on the Christian gospel. The first part of the verse though spoken in just a few words, emphasize that Christians believe that the suffering and reigning Messiah messages of the Old Testament prophecy refer to one and the same Christ, and that Jesus himself is that Christ. Luke 24, verses 44 through 49, Acts 3, 18, and verse 24, Acts 10, 43, Acts 13, 15, and verse 27, Acts 15, 15, and Acts 24, 14. There is no evidence to suggest that first century Judaism expected the Messiah to suffer. The Jews of Jesus' day had no inclination to recognize Jesus of Nazareth in any messianic role. The second part of this verse emphasizes the resurrection of the first fruits of those who believe. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. This resurrected Messiah would light his, would light his people and all the people. Isaiah 42.6, 49.6, and 63. Acts 26, verses 24 through 32. Testimony of Application. We must remember that both Festus and Agrippa were part of the hearing in which Paul was a prisoner. In Acts 26.24, Festus could contain himself no more and interrupted Paul with a shout. He had already complained earlier to Agrippa that he had no intellectual grasp about a dead man named Jesus, who Paul claimed that Jesus was alive. Acts 25, 19. 
Now, to have the whole story surface again in such theological terms was too much for a thinking Roman. Paul's testimony was true and reasonable. Paul found no value in arguing with the Roman governor, so Paul immediately turned to the Jewish king. Paul assumed Agrippa's familiarity with Jesus' message because it was not done in a corner. It was known throughout the Holy Land. Paul did not wait for Agrippa to answer about his familiarity with Jesus' message, but he changed ever so slightly the message rhetorically by asking Agrippa, Agrippa, do you believe in prophets? Then he adds, I know you do. Note that in verse 28, Agrippa says that he is almost persuaded, but Agrippa is an astute politician, and his response represents only a diplomatic way in which he could have answered Paul's question. Agrippa could never say he he believed in the prophets because that would have been an affront to the people he had been appointed to rule. Notice that Paul's response to Agrippa, evangelistic appeal, no matter how long it took Agrippa to believe, was of no concern to Paul. The ultimate issue was that he and everyone else listening that day would eventually believe. And considering all things, Agrippa enjoyed an interesting time. Festus, he prepared his report for Caesar and Caesar's court, and Paul had the maximum opportunity to proclaim the gospel at greater length and with more freedom to proclaim the gospel than any other formal setting in the book of Acts. It was a good day, with one exception. Paul was still a prisoner headed for Rome. That is all for today's podcast. I hope you'll join us next week for part 12 of Acts, the history of the early church, where we will close out the book of Acts with the final two chapters, 27 and 28. Our earnest prayer here at Father the Christ is that this podcast has helped you in understanding the Bible better, strengthen your faith, and encourage you to spend time reading and studying the Word. I want to encourage you here at Father the Christ to spend time in the Word, Spend time praying, and most of all, be part of your local church services each and every Sunday. Now, if you want to catch the podcast here, or anyone that we have uh, that is on online now, all you have to do is go to uh, download Buzzsprout from your Google Play Store, and once you've done that, then you can search it out the Lord uh, in the Christ podcast. And listen to them at any time. If you live in Lorraine County, we would love to have you come and join us at Lorraine Full Gospel Church. We are located at 1900 West 19th Street in Lorraine, Ohio. Our normal church service is at 2 p.m. on Sunday. Until the next podcast, if it is God's will, may the Lord richly bless and keep you. This has been a presentation of Plugged into Christ with your host and pastor and teacher, William Polas. This podcast is a production of Plugged Into Christ. This podcast is sponsored through the Rainfall Gospel Church. This is your announcer, Zayden Grady, wishing you a wonderful day.